everyone, and welcome to episode 72 of UConn 360. As you know, that is the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Coming to you from the three corners of Connecticut and one corner of New York, uh, we are the <laughs> UConn 360 crew. I am your facilitator of sorts. My name is Tom Breen. Joining me, as always, are my colleagues Tyler Silverio. Hey, everyone. Julie Bartuka. What's up? And Ken Best. Mansfield Center checking in. All right. It's November. We're, we're heading towards Thanksgiving as you're listening to this, I hope. And, uh, you know, hopefully things have calmed down in our nation and, and uh, everybody's sort of feeling good and, and, you know, and feeling loose, I think. That's my hope. Everyone's good vibrations is my hope for when we're recording airs. this on a very not loose day. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah. But we've got a, we've got some fun stuff for you. We have some interesting stuff for you. And why don't we kick it off with some news from the world of puppetry, courtesy of Ken Best. Well, this comes from our friend uh, Bart Rockabarton, the head of the Puppet Arts Program, uh, one of his puppetry MFA alums who was from Turkey near the site of the earthquake in Izmir last week, where more than 100 people were killed, and it was uh, recorded as a 7.0 quake. Inesu Ersan was one of the students who I worked with when we had the Boston Pops project a few years ago, which you might recall. Uh, she writes, uh, these are last few days in shock following the news, try to connect everyone with everyone I know. Thankfully, me and my family are okay. Our buildings are okay, but not our fellow citizens. Since the last two days, me and my colleagues are trying to figure out how we can contribute besides donations. Some will do workshops. Me and a friend of mine will perform a puppet show for the children who live in the tents. And there are 5,000 people living in tents there now. This is what we can do right now. There is hope. Just this morning, a three-year-old girl was saved after 65 hours under the wreckage, and a cat was found after 80 hours. The little girl was laying next to a washing machine during the, the earthquake, as I checked that, and that protected her when the house came down. Sue, as, as I know, very talented puppeteer. She's been doing this work since she got back to her home country. Hopefully, uh, she'll be able to uh, help out a little bit more there. Very interesting stuff. Yeah. All right. Well... So turning from that, from the news, uh, we've got some we've got some interesting stories for you. Ken, why don't you tell us what we're going to hear today? Law professor John Kogan is a health insurance expert and the Roger S. Baldwin Scholar at the School of Law here at UConn. Uh, he focuses research and teaching on healthcare organizations and finance, health and law and policy, federal health programs, healthcare fraud and abuse, and health insurance law. He's written scholarly articles extensively on a range of these topics, including the Affordable Care Act and the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, otherwise known as HIPAA. In a new article he's published in the Boston College Law Review, Professor Kogan argues that the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, should remain intact because two laws passed in Congress earlier this year providing support for coronavirus care include extensions of the care in the Affordable Care Act. These are the Families First Coronavirus Relief Act and the CARES Act. Earlier this week in Washington, a case in which plaintiffs opposing the Affordable Care Act was argued before the Supreme Court of the United States. This case is California versus Texas. I spoke with Professor Kogan about his law review article and the case before the Supreme Court. In California versus Texas, which is before the Supreme Court of the United States now, the focus is on the intent of the Affordable Care Act to continue. Your paper in the Boston College Law Review says, well, the issue is really settled by Congress right now because they did that earlier this year. Please explain what the grounds are for this filing and how did you stake out your position after evaluating it? To understand this lawsuit, you have to go back to 2012. And the first uh, Affordable Care Act case 
that went before the Supreme Court, which was called NFIB versus Sebelius. In that case, the plaintiffs uh, argued that the individual mandate, the requirement that you buy health insurance, was unconstitutional. The Supreme Court found that it was constitutional, and it was constitutional under the Congress's taxing power because the mandate included a penalty. If you didn't buy the insurance, you had to pay a penalty. That went into general revenues, and the court said, you know, that's really close enough to a tax. We'll say it's under the Congress's taxing power. And that's why it was constitutional. Fast forward five years to 2017, Congress gets rid of the penalty for the mandate. They pass a law that reduced the, the mandate penalty to zero dollars, but left the mandate in place. The people who opposed the Affordable Care Act remember the 2012 case and immediately filed suit and argued that the mandate was unconstitutional because its penalty was no longer a tax. But that wasn't where they stopped. They then argued that the entire ACA should be ruled unconstitutional, should be struck down along with the mandate, because they said the mandate was so essential to the entire ACA. And there's one provision in the ACA that uses the term essential when talking about the mandate and its relationship to the ACA. The district court in Texas ruled that the mandate was unconstitutional and then turned around and struck down the entire ACA. That was in late 2018. Last March, when the coronavirus was erupting, Congress turned around and passed several coronavirus relief statutes, two of which are called the uh, Family First Coronavirus Response Act. And the second one is called the CARES Act. Together, those two statutes provide almost universal coverage for coronavirus testing to all Americans and provide cost-free access to vaccination for many Americans. In order to do that, Congress used the ACA. The ACA is the foundation for a lot of those benefits in those two statutes. So on the one hand, we have a court saying, no, the ACA is no good. That's what Congress wanted. On the other hand, in 2020, you've got Congress actually using the ACA, and it appears that that's really what they wanted. They wanted the ACA to stand. Now, the ACA is otherwise known as Obamacare for a lot of people. And then the CARES Act stands for the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. A lot of times the court will decline to hear a case for various reasons, and I know they don't have to articulate why. If the court, in looking at cases to, to hear, kind of know that they've already handled this previously and that other things have taken place, why would they still consider it? Well, that's a great question. And a lot of what the Supreme Court does is behind closed doors. So we'll never really know sort of what their thinking was. But when it comes to accepting a case, only four justices uh, need to vote to accept a case, only four out of the nine. So in this case, there were at least four justices who agreed to accept the case. Now, it could have been the four liberal justices who decided that they wanted to have the Supreme Court end this matter and uphold the ACA. It could have been four conservative justices who wanted to strike it down. It could have been some mix. We just don't know. But it's a fairly important case, and so it's not surprising the Supreme Court took it. 
What is the significance of having a commentary and an analysis of a case like this in a law review for the, those folks who don't understand how that works and why it's significant that you get published in a law review? Law reviews are the main venue for publishing uh, the research of law professors. Law professors do write books and publish in various other types of academic journals, but law reviews are the sort of the main landing spot for legal research. And this piece is purely legal research. It goes through the, the several statutes, the, AC, the Affordable Care Act, the CARES Act, the Family First Coronavirus Response Act, and it looks at uh, the uh, override doctrine and the existing cases and comes to a conclusion after all that analysis about uh, what the outcome should be in the case. Now, the fact that this is being published as the case is going to be presented in Washington at the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, what significance does that have for court observers to see that this is another scholar weighing in on, a, on an active case? I would hope that somebody in Washington would read the article. Uh, I, I know that the parties are aware of it. Whether they'll raise it in, during the arguments, uh, we don't know. I would hope that they would read it. The conclusions that I've come to are uh, pretty shocking to most people. I found that the two statutes uh, cited, applied, or extended the Affordable Care Act more than 20 different times. This is really a pretty strong argument that Congress wanted to keep the ACA in place. Why did you take the, the opportunity to, to really dive into this and examine the behind the scenes uh, statutes and how it might be applied? I became interested in this case because uh, I was at first intrigued by the arguments of the two parties. The folks opposing the ACA were arguing that Congress intended one thing and we're looking at the text of the the Affordable Care Act from 2010. The defenders of the ACA argued that Congress intended something else, and they were looking at the text of the 2017 law that got rid of the mandate, but left the ACA intact. And it seemed odd to me because I knew that these two coronavirus response statutes, the Family First Coronavirus Response Act and the CARES Act, had referenced the ACA. So I immediately then dove into those two statutes to see how often and sort of what the kind and quality of the references to the Affordable Care Act was in those two statutes. And I was shocked to find out how often and how deeply those two statutes both cited and relied upon the ACA. What else should people know about this case that will help them understand what does or does not happen? I think people need to understand a couple of things about litigation around the Affordable Care Act. One is, it's not going away. This is not going to be the last case. People are going to continue challenging parts of the ACA or the entire ACA. The ACA is not a perfect statute. It does a lot of good, but there's a lot of parts of it that don't work quite right. And there's a bunch of parts of it that really enrage some people. And I think for that reason, you know, it's going to be years before we ever see the end of the ACA litigation. So this won't be the last case that goes up to the Supreme Court on the Affordable Care Act. 
The second thing for people to remember is, uh, as I, uh, I'll use the term I used before, ACA litigation is a lot of inside baseball. This particular case has to do with a unique ruling by Supreme Court in 2012 as it affects a statute in 2017 related to one single piece of the ACA and then turns on another doctrine called the severability doctrine. And then we need to see how that doctrine is in fact affected by two more statutes that were passed in 2020. This is stuff that most people not only don't understand, but don't want to understand. They've got better things to do than to try to figure out what's going on. And I think when we get down to litigation at this sort of level, dealing with a statute that affects hundreds of millions of people, it's really time to, to rethink how we provide health care in this country. As you heard, he says this stuff is not going away. We're going to be living with the challenges to the Affordable Care Act for some time. We'll just have to watch and see what happens. And I'm sure he will be writing more about this. Very interesting stuff. And uh, it just shows the sort of depth of expertise we have at the UConn faculty. Mm-hmm. Why don't we escape from the tension of the present <laughs> and escape into a, a fonder time, a historical time? And why don't we talk about a beloved UConn institution? That's the Homer Babbage Library. Oh, we love the Homer Babs. Little little history question for you. The Homer Babbage Library was originally named for a different person. Do you know who it was? The the current building was the named something building. else. Yes, the current building. I used to know that, but I forgot. I don't know. Tyler? Never heard never heard of it. All right. Well let's let's start with just a history of the library first and we'll work up to an answer to our fun trivia question. So the, the original library at uh, UConn, of course, came from the personal book collection of Charles Stores of the Stores Brothers. Uh, that was a few hundred volumes, and the uh, collection, of course, extended to, to today. It's where it's several million volumes, um, plus all the online resources. That collection was held in a the former state orphanage at the corner of North Eagleville and Route 195, which was the first building on campus known as Old Main. People who follow the Old Main Twitter account will recognize the reference. And then it was that for a few decades until a new building was built named after Charles Beach, an early president, the Beach Building, which, of course, is still on campus. And that was originally a library, bookstore. There was a cafe in there. It was kind of the central social center of campus. The <laughs> post office was there. It wasn't an academic building at all. It was uh, kind of everything but uh, classes. But the library continued to grow and grow and grow. And then uh, it was um, eventually a new building uh, was built in 1940. It opened in 1940, I should say. Didn't have a name initially until it was named after uh, uh, Wilbur Cross, which, again, still on campus. But that was originally the library building, and it was a library building uh, for decades. We did a history corner on Wilbur Cross, right? We did. As yes. the collection continued to grow, uh, that was sort of the center of campus. You can see old photos of people studying in there. Um, there was a famously a student occupation of the library. And that building has two very nice reading rooms that are now used yes. for meetings. Yes, beautiful reading. I used to nap in the reading rooms all the time before yes. they were They've renovated. been beautifully restored. But uh, it, it was, the collections were just too much, and the, also the student body was growing way too much uh, for the library to be in Wilbur Cross. So years and years of wrangling, uh, the state capitol eventually got uh, $19 million approved in funding to build an entirely new purpose-built library. Ground was broken in 1975, a year after the building occupation that Ruby disliked so much. Um, <laughs> and that building was to be named for Revolutionary War hero Nathan Hale. Oh, but interestingly, uh, reaction to this was uh, negative. 
Hmm. People did people did not like this idea at all, and the name was changed to University Library, which is really exciting. It's like the Washington football team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it remained University Library uh, until 1985, when it was named after Homer Babbage, a year after he, he died. Why the Nathan Hale hatred? I'm not sure. Uh, it just people, maybe people didn't think it was UConn specific enough. Okay, makes sense. But the library actually opened in 1978, so the library and I are the same age. Hmm. celebrating 42 years i also like books so another thing i have in common with you <laughs> but yeah so it opened in, in 1978 with 396,000 square feet of floor space which is about four times the size of the wilbur cross library wow and it wasn't again wasn't named after homer babbage until 1985 so yeah there's a little little trivia question next time uh, you're passing by the library you can say to people you know who that building was named after originally and since everyone listens to this podcast, they'll say, yes, it was named after Nathan Hale. I heard that on UConn 360. Did it ever get officially named that or was it just That was stopped? the original. That was the name. It was, I mean, as it was being built, that was, was what it was called. And that was okay. the understanding when the money was approved. But there was no like dedication naming no. it the Nathan no. Hale. They just said, oh, University Library, back to the drawing board. Right. By the time it opened in 1978, it was just called the University Library. Interesting. I do have to say, uh, listening to UConn 360 does get you ahead on UConn Trivia because the latest issue of UConn Magazine, I believe three of the four Tom's Trivia questions were subjects of Tom's History Corner, and I knew them. That's a reward for listening. It is a reward. A little Easter egg. Also, I have to say, I, I took some books out of the Homer Babbage Library recently, and uh, they're doing great despite the challenges of the pandemic. You, 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 can, you have to request the books in advance. You can't just go and browse the stacks now, but they will they will get the books to you quickly. And they give them to you in, in uh, shopping bags, which is odd. <laughs> but now I have a bunch of shopping bags that I took a bunch of books out. Well, there, are, there are safety protocols. Yes, absolutely. Safety yes. first. Do we have, I mean, I'm sure there are pictures of the inside of the Wilbur Cross Library, right? I can't really picture yes. that building as a library. I'd love to see. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll dig up some pictures. But yeah, we definitely have pictures of, of the, the stacks. Stacks. Uh, they moved all the books from Beach Hall by hand, and we have definitely have pictures of them, like students, like carting these giant armfuls of books over. That's awesome. <laughs> they didn't have like wheelbarrows. They no, they, it was. I mean, you know, <laughs> it was a different time. Hey, farmers, well, do you think they would books. know how to move stuff? Yeah, they probably got course credit for moving the books. I don't know how it worked. Yeah, it was like when they had to build walls. Yeah, Stone yeah. Walls, move books, whatever. Um, well, this is lovely. Very interesting. Yeah. University library. Well, we also have the time when it was wrapped in plastic. Yes. I do. Yeah. I, who likes to talk about that? Um, Thor likes to talk about that. He referred to it as a diaper, I think. Yeah. It, that, that started in 1989. There were structural problems, which included the potential for the brick facade to fall away from the structure. <laughs> so the building was wrapped in plastic sheeting. Although no bricks ever fell. It was just a risk. Thank goodness. But, but it did lead to the visual uh, evidence that the campus needed to be upgraded and things needed to change. And that's why we have the campus that we have today, because uh, the legislators came here and looked and said, no, this is not good. That's true. <laughs> Prior to, that's a good point. Prior to UConn 2000, all building projects at UConn were handled through the state Department of Public Works, including the library. And the fact that the library had so many problems was a big public relations point where people said UConn should handle its own building. Hmm. In fact, the signing for that uh, legislation took place right in front of the building, wrapped in plastic. Yeah. So uh, we've learned a lot about the library today. And if you'd like to learn even more, 
not just about the library, but about anything, you can go ahead and uh, follow us on Twitter at UConn360. You can follow. Uh, the, that's not. That's not our handle. Though. Oh, it's UConn at UConn Podcast. <laughs> that's right. We we haven't kicked the squatter off UConn360. Somebody's yet. squatting on our UConn360. It's all right. At UConn Podcast. Uh, if you want to see old pictures, I'll find old pictures of um, Wilbur Cross when it was a library. Uh, at Maine underscore old. And uh, you can follow me uh, for some reason if you want to at TJ Breen on Twitter. And please check out today.uconn.edu uh, to learn all kinds of stuff about uh, the University of Connecticut. Uh, Tyler, is there anything you want to plug for people? Uh, as usual, you can find uh, my stuff at UConn FASA on Instagram. Um, that's where uh, the UConn Filipino Club is uh, centered. And you can find out more about that there. Very nice. How's the semester going, Tyler? Pretty good. It's definitely just, you know, the home stretch now. I have a lot of papers to uh, <clears throat> just grind through. Not a lot of exams, actually. My classes are mostly papers and uh, art projects. So that's kind of nice. Good luck. Thank yeah. you. It is the home stretch now, right? Yeah. I, I mean, this semester has gone by pretty quickly, I feel like. Maybe not. Maybe it's crawled by for other people. But for me, it seemed like it's gone by pretty <laughs> no, quickly. No, it's flown by for me anyway. Julie, is there anything you want to you want to plug to the people of listener land? Yep. I'm at Julie Bartuka and the new Yukon Health Journal with beautiful cover art by our colleague Yesenia Carrero is on uh, healthjournal.yukon.edu with some of those feature stories appearing on Yukon Today soon. That's right. And Ken, where can the good people find you? All my exploits are at Yukon Today, today.yukon.edu. And of course, on Saturdays from 3 to 6 at 91.7 WHUS and stores UConn Sound Alternative. And we're all on Fridays at 11 o'clock on the uh, WHUS version of the UConn 360 podcast. And I'm going to be taking on a new project. Uh, we're going to be doing lots of holiday music on the radio station. So because of my extensive collection in the wall of sound behind me of holiday music that I use, uh, we'll have some eclectic sounds, new and old uh, probably during the week of, of Christmas. Very nice. Uh, can, can people make requests? Um, if they get them to me soon, because I have to figure out when I'm going to actually do the recordings. We're pre-recording. All right, everyone. Absolutely be sure to tune into Ken's weekly radio show and uh, the, the Holiday Spectacular. And uh, thanks for listening, as always. And we'll see you in two weeks.